This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, good afternoon. It's great to have your company today for The Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff with you for the next hour. And we'll be talking about a few things. We're going to catch up with Brett Smith from Rural Business Support on how the curtain opener for the soccer match yesterday went, how much money was raised to support people struggling with drought along, not drought, or flooding along the River Murray. I'll have more on that soon. And lentils are such a big part of the crop rotation in South Australia now, but about five years ago, they really weren't being grown all that widely. But it seems the people who have stuck with them have really made the most of it. Those that have stuck with it were rewarded really well. And some first-time growers, I believe, uh, in areas to the north of, you know, Air Peninsula, uh, had some tremendous lentil yields. Yes, 2022-23 it was quite a good year for a lot of growers who have turned their hand to lentil growing and uh, it's perhaps even their first year, perhaps a bit of, maybe not beginner's luck, but a bit of a boost at the start. So I'll uh, just have a bit of a look at how lentil production across South Australia is going. But first up, River Murray flooding has meant more debris and organic matter has made its way onto the floodplain. It's concerning Riverland locals who use irrigation water for their crops or in their homes. Winky resident Vanessa Wadenhofer has irrigation water at her home, which is usually used for drinking, bathing and gardening. But due to concerns around the quality, she's now relying on rainwater this summer. I would say it's been a few months lately and it is horrible. We haven't been able to shower for those few months, actually. So we've been going to a friend's houses because they have town water. Um, Yeah, as soon as we turn on even... On a hot day and turn on the cold tap, it reeks. It smells so bad. I don't even want to shower in it or turn on my sprinklers or anything. (laughs) No way. You can't even shower in it. Is it the smell mostly or the colour or...? Um, It would be the smell. uh, And if you have high pressure, it kind of hurts because it feels like there's sand or mud in your water. So it really feels unsafe and unhealthy to be showering in it. Yeah, wow. Have you seen anything like this before? Do you know? I know a couple, like, few years ago, um, maybe 10 plus, I'm not sure. Uh, During the High River in, like, 2016 maybe? Yeah, something like that, yep. Um, We had it then, but not this bad. At our house, we are connected to rainwater or straight-up irrigation water, so... I would say we can't really drink the irrigation water, so I would say it's... I I wouldn't, as I've said before, I wouldn't shower in it. It doesn't look healthy. I noticed that my skin got a bit dry while showering in it. Because it's so gross in the pipes and everything, um, we have one tap connected and the main sink with rainwater and irrigation water. Um, because it's using the one tap, our rainwater does get a bit icky when we use it. What do you think about like all of this for the whole community? So when I babysit some of my friends' kids, I have to make a whole bath full of rainwater. So that means boiling pots of water and making it hot and then filling it up with the rainwater tap and everything like that. Um, 
yeah, I would say in the community, if they have children, I wouldn't be bathing them or showering them in this kind of water unless they have a permanent filter right next to their house. Sounds like a tough situation if you're trying to bathe children, having to go over to someone's house because the water quality isn't quite what you'd like it to be. That was Winky resident Vanessa Wadenhofer. Member for Chafee, Tim Whetstone, says both irrigators and irrigation bodies can play a part in improving the water quality. Well, look, there, there's been uh, many uh, issues with uh, the quality of water and that is taking its toll not only on uh, irrigators' filtration uh, and the quality of water, but we're also seeing uh, some of those outlying communities that are supplied the non-potable water have got very serious discoloration uh, and uh, quite an odour to, to the water. You know, not only is that coming uh, directly from the river with high organic content, but it's also water that is sitting in uh, in pipes that uh, that breeds uh, the bryzoa, uh, shells, uh, as well as that uh, that highly high organic content that's coming down uh, the river system after obviously a, a high flow and flood event, and uh, that that is part and parcel uh, of what happens after a flood. We've been hearing from people that they're taking some methods themselves to avoid this. I'm talking about specifically people in their homes um, who are, you know, had their tap water. They feel that they're not confident to drink it or bathe in it. But there are only so many options you can take. Not everyone has a rainwater tank. Not everyone has a filter that they can use, whether that's over the counter or otherwise. Um, do you have? Um, do you think that there needs to be more solutions for addressing? This because to to upgrade that infrastructure would cost a lot of money. Yeah, well, it's certainly a, it, it is a costly exercise uh, to prepare, um, you know, water storage and, and water capture so that it is a, of an acceptable standard. You know, myself as a as a former irrigator living out on on farms, um, you know, we do have to put in uh, our own storage and we do have to put water that is acceptable, you know, in a time or in a timely manner. Or it does come down to uh, you know, put installing filtration that will uh, that will give a, a certain standard of water that people expect. Then, of course, there is uh, other other options about you know, installing rainwater tanks. If you are looking for a, a much higher quality water, then sometimes uh, that would mean a, uh, a delivery of uh, of potable, uh, potable water uh, from from a town or from a treatment plant. And so the options are uh, many and varied, but they're also quite costly. And so that's uh, really got people uh, uh, with a bit of a conundrum at the moment, just exactly what do they do in this time of uncertainty. Now, who do you think that this responsibility would fall to? Would it be, you know, such as the Renmark Irrigation Trust or the Central Irrigation Trust to to try and get some funds to improve that infrastructure, such as things like, you know, better filtration to of all of those all of those things which are impacting the water quality? Or does it fall on irrigators themselves to um, to filter through their end? Look, I, I think there is a shared responsibility. Um, I know that uh, you know it would come at significant cost for the irrigation trust to put in the sufficient filtration and infrastructure to supply a potable standard water. I think it really does come down to you know that personal responsibility to be better uh, prepared. That we know that uh, irrigation trusts uh, do maintenance on their pipe work and, uh, and infrastructure annually, and so I think you know the the writing has been on the wall for for a number of years now that people 
do need to install uh, rainwater tanks or, or storage and they can further consider upgrading filtration of that water so that they can be a little, little bit more self-sufficient um, in a time when we have either uh, a flood or a high flow event but also when those uh, irrigation trusts have uh, have the option to do an annual maintenance shutdown uh, and that means that people have to rely on their own uh, own methods uh, to have uh, a good, reliable, clean water supply to their homes. Member for Chafee, Tim Whetstone, speaking with Sophie Landau. To the Air Peninsula now, and about five years ago, there weren't many lentils grown on the EP, but now they are a big part of many farmers' crop rotations. York Peninsula farmer Bill Long bought land on the Air Peninsula around Toolagi and Cummins when he saw the opportunity that lentils could have. And he says the lentil market has plenty of room for EP farmers if they're willing to give them a go, like he did back in 2017. Well, we'd been growing lentils for a long time on York Peninsula and uh, the reason for the shift was was really around uh, the scale of our farm operation over there, the cost of land over on York Peninsula rising continuously and largely driven by that increase in lentil production and the profitability of lentils and we figured that if we wanted to stay farming we really needed to increase our size of the operation scale and so we began looking into areas that weren't necessarily well, offered good value in terms of uh, uh, land purchase opportunities and that were also suitable for lentil production because we recognised what had happened on York Peninsula might happen elsewhere. So, so that was the reason we, we came with the intent of picking some country that we felt was really suitable for lentil production and, uh, and here we are. Because there probably wasn't a lot of lentils grown here on the Air Peninsula before you, you came over here. Well, no, certainly uh, people have been dabbling in them in the, in the better areas and that was the way lentils started on York Peninsula too, right, the, in the, you know, the sandy land sort of area and then gradually evolved over time to some of the less reliable, more variable soils. And so we could see the trend happening. You know, it was certainly, uh, there's nothing new. We're not doing anything new. We just uh, recognised perhaps people weren't, you know, familiar with the crop particularly. And there were a few uh, barriers to production like storage and cleaning facilities and those sort of things that we still need to work through and overcome and improve over time. But uh, largely, you know, the rainfall and soil types on Air Peninsula are well suited to, to lentil production uh, in, in most years. Have you noticed that there's a few more people now getting on board since you have come over to the Air Peninsula? Oh, look, absolutely. And it's not just, it's not me. Mm-hmm. It's, um, there was a deliberate uh, investment made by GRDC at the time, of which we were part of, and which I drove on the panel. And that was really around, um, you know, peer-to-peer learning, like uh, growers getting together and focusing our, our efforts in um, just regular meetings, discussing how we might uh, increase, um, at that stage, lentil and chickpea production. It's narrowed it down pretty quickly to, to lentil production being probably more suitable just because the chickpea market was uh, a bit unstable and more difficulty in growing that crop. Lentils are the easiest of the high-value pulses to grow. So we had a, a deliberate campaign to work with neighbours and uh, over... Uh, and in a number of different regions on Air Peninsula to try and look at the expansion of the crop in, uh, in areas where that hadn't been grown before. You touched on this a bit before, but what have been some of the biggest hurdles with lentils here on the EP? Well, just lack of uh, uh, real knowledge and confidence in growing them in the first instance, so that's step number one. That's probably the easy bit. There are barriers that 
or considerations growers need to work through, um, you know, they need to have a bit of extra equipment, like they need to be able to stone roll paddocks where you've got a lot of rock. You need to be able to harvest this crop, you're right on the ground, and uh, uh, so, you know, just some of the equipment uh, barriers were, were probably limiting. You know, people say you need flex fronts, you don't necessarily need flex fronts, but you just need good harvest equipment to be able to get the crop off quickly. But most farmers are geared up or able to gear up and do that reasonably quickly. I guess it was really just about lack of confidence and, and the first year we started growing them was 2017. It was after the 2016 season, which was a very good one, uh, pretty much all over Air Peninsula and, um, and York Peninsula as well. And then we hit a 2017 season, which I th- remember was a late start, very cold, low rainfall sort of season. And so to start growing cro- new crops um, in difficult times is is a challenge and it certainly was a difficult run of seasons for many and particularly in those lighter sandier soils you know where you're not getting good cover um, it became problematic it's not while it's probably one of the best pulses to grow in some of the lighter years because you do have some soil cover at the end of the season just those tough seasons took the wind out of the sails of a lot of people and just just destroyed their confidence a little Um, last year was fabulous. Those that have stuck with it were rewarded really well and some first time growers I believe uh, in areas to the north of you know Air Peninsula uh, had some tremendous lentil yields you know in their first year or so. So beginner's luck, good on them. Uh, hope they continue because I, I don't see any limitation really to um, expansion of this that crop in this area. What's the market like for lentils and in particular lentils from the Air Peninsula? Oh look market the market's great uh it's the volatility in the market but really uh lentils are a major source of protein for many countries around the world rather than meat being the major source of protein for australian consumers um and that's that's in you know countries like india and bangladesh and sri lanka and and so those they have huge populations and they're growing at at australia's population per year you know so uh, the market uh, is growing as the world population grows and specifically in those countries it is the major source of protein and while they might want to change that protein source they're unlikely to do that rapidly. So uh, it's it's the perfect protein source for, for the world's population. It's cheap to grow, it's um, cheap to export and move around, it's, uh, it is the perfect protein package and so I'd, while we'll see variation in pricing depending on global production our expansion over here will make no difference whatsoever really to to overall supply and the impact on other growers on York Peninsula and the Wimmer and if Air Peninsula growers got going would be little to nothing. Just on that expansion you touched this before but can you see it getting even bigger and more growers getting into lentils over the next few years? Yes I can and already I'm speaking to a number of growers that that intend to expand their area from a meagre beginning um, in the last couple of years to becoming their major pulse in areas that haven't traditionally grown them before. So I'm in no doubt that we'll see a big increase in production in the coming few years. And, you know, that's with the support of a few good seasons, let's hope, but to give people confidence. But... They are easy to grow. There's lots of herbicides, lots of ways of managing disease. The reliability, standability, harvestability of, of uh, that crop has improved enormously through uh, good investment in breeding programs. 
uh, and agronomy programs to help us make the production of this so much more simpler and more reliable uh, than it has been in the past. Air Peninsula and York Peninsula farmer Bill Long speaking with Brooke Nandoff there about growing lentils on the Air Peninsula. It's coming up to 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Up next, I'll get the details on just how hot this week is going to be across South Australia. But in the meantime, Australian Wool Innovation has come under scrutiny at Senate Estimates hearing for the decision to drop the amount of money the organisation spends on wild dogs. AWI Chair Jock Laurie was questioned by National Senator Bridget McKenzie about the move to spend more money on what he describes as more pressing issues. We will continue with our investment in uh, wild dogs, although it has been pulled back over the last few years, obviously because of financial constraints in the company. But it is critical that we continue that work and we will continue that work. So why have you ceased or reduced funding for the wild dog control initiative, given the impacts they have on the national flock generally and therefore levy payers' businesses? Uh, we've got to manage the budget as we as we best can. We'll try and distribute funds across all areas uh, appropriately and uh, identify and target the best areas for spend that we possibly can. There are dogs uh, right across South Australia, Western Australia, right across the thing. We are uh, and obviously doing all we can to invest um, uh, with wild dog people and machinery and everything else we can. So your own website says that wild dogs um, cost... Uh the Australian economy in excess of $89 million a year. We know the wet weather has the potential to explode that population, particularly in our national parks. What have you prioritised over the wild dog program? It's always, you know, when you're in the position as you are um, and your board is, it's around priorities of the spend. Yep. What have you chosen to fund at the expense of the wild dog program? Uh, Certainly we've got a huge investment in shearer training at the moment. Um, I think we've just allocated $10.5 million for the next three years. That's on top of the, tra- the work we've already done. We've got some programs working with Adelaide University. We've got a lot of uh, uh, extension programs around managing flies, moving to non-mules. There's a whole range of work in that space that we have to do. Are they um, new spends? As you've pulled back the wild dog program funding, are these new, new spends that you've bought online? Uh, <laughs> no, but they're probably uh, expenditure that we have expanded because of the right. problems that we have with labour. And so, therefore, we have reduced in other areas. And is that a res- result of direct feedback from levy payers? Or is it Shear- a decision of the boars? Shearing is the biggest problem in Australia at the moment. And that your levy Shear- payers have told you that they pull back from the wild dogs, invest in the shearer skilling? The, the information we're getting is that we need to get the wool off the sheep. And if we can't get the wool off the sheep, then all the other problems around it aren't quite as big. So we need to actually train people, get them into the sheds, support them in the sheds and do all we can, all research we can to apply pressure to the market down the track. And what has been the increase in shearing capacity across the economy as a result of AWI's investment? I think there's, uh, at the moment we've got about two, I think there's 160 or 80 new learner shearers in last financial year. I think we've got another 80 learner shearers in this financial mm-hmm. year that are working in the environment. We've also got uh, um, in the improvers, so we're doing a lot of training in shed with shearers, increasing numbers, increasing quality, so there's a lot of work going on there. Uh, we're actively involved in the um, uh, new national tag that's been set up. They had a meeting today, which is about 
people identifying areas that we can actually help that process. And mm. there are things that probably need to be done. You know, the Pacific Island Scheme was mentioned earlier on. There's a whole range of other areas where we can get staff in and we're more than prepared to train them when we bring them into that space. AWI Chair Jock Laurie speaking at Senate Estimates about the decision by the organisation to spend less money on the wild dog problem and more on issues like the shearer shortage. And uh, he's been questioned by National Senator Bridget McKenzie. Now, we know it's going to be a hot week. It's uh, already quite warm, but it's nothing like what we're going to see on Wednesday and Thursday. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, Jenny Horvath, can elaborate. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So summer's still here. It might be the tail end, but it's going out with a bang by the looks of things. Yeah, that's right. So it's making its presence felt, even though it's late in the in the season. But we have managed to keep some of that heat across the north. We've been a bit spared further south, but we're definitely going to be feeling that as we head towards the the end of the end of the week. Having said that, on a bit of a flip side, it was a bit of a bit of a foggy start for Mount Gambier this morning, but that cleared up relatively quickly with the sun and a bit of warmth, and we are relatively cloud free across. Essay at the moment. The only real sort of significant weather that we could see um, this afternoon, we've got a trough of low pressure that's lingering up in the far northeast of the state. So that could trigger a little bit of um, thunderstorm activity up in the far northeast later this afternoon and into the evening. And we could see a little bit of gustiness with some of those storms as well if they do eventuate. But as we mentioned, we've got that heat sort of rolling through and having a bit of a look at some of the temperatures already that we are seeing across the state today. We've already hit um, 40 degrees at Sejuna, 41 at Nullarbor and getting pretty close to 40 across various um, centres in the north. So, yeah, we're already starting to see some of that heat across the state today and we'll see that more broadly as we roll into the remainder of the week. As a consequence of that heat, we do have a heat wave warning out for South Australia and that does include a extreme heat wave warning for the West Coast District and a severe heat wave warning um, for the Adelaide metropolitan area. York Peninsula, Mid-North, Flinders, Eastern Air Peninsula, Lower Air Peninsula and the Northwest Pastoral Districts at this stage. So that was yesterday afternoon. They will get updated um, every afternoon from now until the end of the week with that change moving through. So I imagine we'll probably start to see maybe some extra districts included in that warning. And even though um, we haven't got, say, warnings for elsewhere across the, the state, we are will be experiencing low-intensity heatwave conditions um, for other parts of the state as we head towards the end of the week. So just having a bit of a, a, a look forward again. Tomorrow we've still got that high pressure system to the south so temperatures in the south are still probably just slowly slowly rising. We still have that um, trough hanging around in the northeast in the state so on Tuesday there we could still see a little bit of thunderstorm activity again developing probably more likely during the afternoon and evening again we could be seeing some gusty storms if they do eventuate and probably tomorrow looks like a, maybe a broader area across the northeast of the state but remaining pretty um, dry elsewhere and those temperatures slowly on the rise especially across the southern parts. Um, by Wednesday, we will be trending a bit more northerly with our winds. That trough would have weakened and moved away. So we are looking at a, a dry, very hot day across the state on Wednesday. And we are looking at those conditions continuing on Thursday, those very hot conditions and the dry northerly still persisting. And as we head towards the end of the week and those hot northerlies picking up, um, we will be looking at those fire dangers increasing just that little bit more every day. And Friday probably is looking like the 
the day of interest, especially with our fire dangers, that is change day. So ahead of that change, we will see those northerly winds really, really picking up. So a little bit of uncertainty still with our timing as it comes across from the west on Friday. Ahead of that, we could be seeing some thunderstorm activity on and with that change, maybe just following. And again, we could see a little bit of shower activity as that moves across the state on Friday and Saturday. Much cooler conditions for the weekend. We're expecting very little rainfall with those thunderstorms in the northeast over the next couple of days. They're essentially dry, maybe a couple of millimetres at best. And then with this system coming through on Friday, maybe across the agricultural area in the northwest pastoral districts and western districts, we could see falls of one to five millimetres and potentially five to 15 with those thunderstorms moving across Cassie. Thank you so much for that, Jenny. And we'll keep updated and obviously people need to stay out of the heat of the day if they can and stay hydrated because it is going to be very hot in the far west of New South Wales. It's going to be sunny tomorrow morning, but there could be a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures falling to 21 to 26 degrees, so pretty warm during the day. It'll reach 40 degrees. The lower western will be mostly sunny. There's a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Not much chance anywhere else, but a thunderstorm could be on the cards in the far east in the afternoon and evening as well. Temps getting down to 19 to 23, but during the day reaching around 40 degrees. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, welcome if you're just joining me. Coming up, I'm going to tell you how much money the grower versus government soccer match on the weekend raised. It was the curtain opener to the Adelaide United Western Sydney Wanderers game. I'll also tell you who won. And options for people who require gluten-free foods have expanded enormously in recent years and a University of Adelaide discovery could develop that further. Psyllium has a lot of a really wide variety of uses that it could be used for. Uh, Gluten-free breads are the main one, um, but we're looking into all sorts of avenues for delivering these fibres into people's diets. I'll have more on what this discovery will mean for the development of gluten-free food soon. First, though, to news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, several Adelaide Hill suburbs are due to have their power out this week, which will coincide with the state's heatwave. Maintenance works have been scheduled in the area on Tuesday, Wednesday and Friday. Paul Robertson, SA Power Network, says the company will be reviewing all the planned work, but he is concerned about people relying on mains-powered pumps during bushfire season. A man has pleaded not guilty to murdering his own mother in the Adelaide Hills. Dr Beau Sebastian, Beau Sebastian de Simone was arrested last April at the Crafers West home he'd been sharing with his 62-year-old mother, Linda Simon. Police found her body in a rear shed at the property during a welfare check. And the fifth round of COVID-19 vaccination is available from today in South, in South Australia. Those eligible must be 18 years or over and have not had a COVID-19 or a booster dose in the past six months. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, uh, there was a pretty important soccer match on, on the weekend and I'm not meaning the Adelaide United Western Sydney Wanderers A-League match, although that was very important as well. But the curtain opener to that was a special flood recovery charity match that uh, was designed to raise funds for primary producers and agricultural businesses affected by the River Murray flood. So to find out just how much money they have raised, I'm joined by the CEO of Rural Business Support, Brett Smith. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, I understand a fairly big cheque was handed over on the weekend. Just how much money was raised? Well, look, it was a bigger cheque than, than perhaps uh, that, that we thought at one stage because uh, the government uh, uh, came to the party and uh, on Saturday, uh, Minister Claire Scriven uh, made an announcement that uh, for every dollar that was uh, donated, that the government would contribute uh, accordingly, so uh, up to $100,000. So that, uh, that actually made our, our weekend, really, because... It meant that at the end of the day, uh, we were doubling up on everything. And uh, at the moment, and things aren't closed off yet because there's a lot of other things to fall into place, but at the moment, we're sitting at 155000 which uh, enables us to reach out and help support uh, up to 80 um, uh, operations uh, that, uh, that are in need. So uh, it is going uh, really well. Uh, we have great support uh, behind the scenes uh, to make this, uh, to maximise the impact. That is, is wonderful. And do, so you weren't expecting the government to come in with that support? Well, it wasn't necessarily part of the original um, deal, really. Uh, we, we were just, we were looking to, uh, to get that support from, uh, from supporters and, and, and donations. Um, and look, we've had some really great support. And I must say uh, that uh, the partners in this have really made it happen. Um, and uh, in, in particular, uh, Angelo DeMarcy at the SA Produce Market has just been absolutely fantastic. And his team in ensuring that, uh, that, we've, uh, that this has, has been a success um, of course, Adelaide United, Nathan Cosmina uh, has, has been, again, absolutely fantastic uh, over the weekend uh, to put on such a, a great event. And uh, Franklin uh, Dos Santos uh, from Foodland, um, who has been very supportive and Foodland are still running a promotion uh, by where um, the, uh, the proceeds of sales uh, over the coming months will also go towards this uh, uh, towards the final figure, if you like. And that's why it's, we haven't really cut off yet. We're still we're still growing those funds, um, and uh, yeah, absolutely elated of, as to where we are at the moment. And I guess the all important question: Who did you play for? Because this was producers versus the government. Which camp do you fall into? The, the soccer game. Well, I, w- I was a bit of a. I was a bit of a floater, um, Switzerland, Cassie, and uh, I ended up. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, so complete neutrality. But uh, I ended up falling into the government's uh, side. Not that I don't think they needed uh, my talent on the day, uh, which was simply to uh, to contribute uh, out, out on the pitch uh, in a uh, purely a, a placement. <laughs> but the uh, the government the government uh, the government actually came up with the uh, with the win. Um, what was the which, score uh, um, on air? It was 5-2. Um, and Fairly I think uh, Mehdi uh, Darudi, beg your pardon? Fairly convincing win then? Uh, well, it was a convincing win. Look, I think, you know, I thought, look, I think uh, uh, soccer was the winner on the day. <laughs> um, I think uh, some, some, some goals, uh, some goals made, it, made it through and other goals didn't make it through. Both very, both very competitive sides. It was played in absolutely fantastic spirits. And uh, but I think you know Mehdi Darudi from Persia, uh, who was the captain of the government side, had a few surprises up his sleeve because there were a couple of players that sort of um, 
came in from uh, from from somewhere that uh, that actually knew what they were doing. So that was absolutely fantastic. Well, I was backing the growers. Uh, so, yeah, I I must admit I didn't pick the winner there, but I thought there were some pretty skilled guys there. And it sounds like for a rugby player you make a good soccer player. Is that the case? Well, I, 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 I use the term placement, and purely <laughs> it was to stand there and just block block people from coming through, uh, which I was good at. But uh, uh, otherwise there was a little bit of running, and I have to admit uh, a little bit sore this morning, but... Uh, as I said, you know, look, I mean, if, if you looked across uh, the player group on both sides, there were lots of names there. I, I wouldn't know where to start in terms of uh, listing those off, but we had a lot of, had a lot of government uh, um, uh, representatives, uh, MPs, MLCs that were there, you know, from, uh, from, the, from the Riverland through to, um, you know, through to uh, obviously Adelaide and uh, they all contributed and, and, and they all had fun and uh, and that was the main the main purpose of the day was to have fun but also of course to to raise those funds um, which uh, which we've uh, we're very happy we've done and has that money been earmarked for anything in particular well it has and and probably um, on the on the more serious note and and I must say the event is as much about the money um, is it as it is about um, showing um, the people that have been impacted by the flood event that um, there are those out there that care. Um, in the first instance, it's just knowing that that the rest of the community, um, whether it's people that are located um, in the Riverland or uh, along the Mid Murray and Lower Lakes, that the rest of the community care about what has happened. And and to do something like this, I think number one shows that. There is a, a big group out there, both growers um, and retailers and politicians that, that really do care about what's happened. But secondly, it's about what's going to happen over the next 12 months. In the next 12 months, we've gone, you know, the, the, the floodwaters are receding um, and now the results of what has happened are becoming evident. And, uh, you know, the cash flow impacts of that to our primary producers, um, you know, whether you're, whether you're growing grapes or or fruit, or you, or you're, you're growing pasture, is going to become more evident um, as funds from the farm are directed to um, the repairs um, and the things that have to happen around that space, and there's less money available for other things. So, we'll be working with many of those primary producers um, hand in hand uh, through our financial counsellors, through um, other government services, the FABs, for example example and we'll be identifying where the need is and we'll be able to direct to direct these funds to where the need is um, on an ongoing basis I guess until the funds are all gone but given that we've had this great contribution from the government um, as I said it doubles the funds um, and it gives us greater uh, I guess opportunity to um, have a, have a, a much broader impact. So the check from the weekend is one hundred and fifty-five thousand dollars. That's below. Uh, you were wanting to raise one hundred thousand dollars in your own right, but that's actually the matched funding. So the goal really is to try and get to two hundred thousand dollars. If people would like to still donate, what can they do? Well, we're yes, and that's a great question, and we still are open to donations. So um, if if people would like to log on to the Rural Business Support website, that's Rural Business Support. Dot org dot au, uh, the and follow the prompts. Uh, you, you can still donate um, uh, 
for the next ensuing period. I'm not sure exactly when we're going to close off, but we're still open. Uh, and um, the other alternative is, is to, is to uh, uh, simply uh, call our 1800 number, which is 1800 836 211. So all donations uh, are welcome. Uh, we're still open. And I must say, Cass, I did mention we still have uh, we still have a number of um, uh, potential donors uh, that are talking to us at the moment. We still have uh, the promotion with Foodland that still hasn't come into that number. So we're hoping that we get um, to the $200,000 mark um, and, be, and hopefully beyond. I'm, I'm sure it's sounding very promising. And the good thing about uh, this is that all the money stays in South Australia, which is a, another thing that people do like to support the people in their own state. So thank you so much for your time today. And uh, I hope you can rest up. I'm sure you were a great asset to the team, though. And thanks for your time today. <laughs> thanks, Cassie. And just a reminder to the, to the, to the listeners, um, it's, we're, we're still accepting donations. Thank you very much. No worries. Brett Smith, CEO of Rural Business Support. There he was part of the government side that won on the weekend as part of Sunday's flood recovery charity match that was played ahead of the Adelaide United Western Sydney Wanderers game. So uh, some great money raised there, 150000 But as Brett Smith mentioned, there is more money still to come. It is 19 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Moving to food now and more and more we're seeing the expansion of gluten-free products on our supermarket shelves. But growing one of the key ingredients, which is psyllium husks, is often quite difficult. With the market size of gluten-free foods expected to reach 8.3 billion US dollars in 2025, Adelaide researchers are keen to find a way to make growing the popular fibre supplement a lot easier. Dr James Cowley, a researcher at the University of Adelaide, says the first time dis- this first-time discovery that they've just made will now move into a breeding program. So what we've discovered is the first high-quality uh, reference genome for a crop called Plantago ovata. Um, it's the source of a really important dietary fibre supplement called psyllium husk that we also uh, use in a lot of gluten-free foods. So it's a key product in uh, a lot of gluten-free breads and uh, is important for quality for people that want to eat gluten-free. So with this understanding of this genome, what can that mean for expanding gluten-free food options? So basically the production of psyllium is, is quite poor in a lot of places because it's affected by a lot of disease and it's affected by drought. And normally we'd be able to get over those problems by breeding the species, but we've been we've struggled to do this up until now because we've lacked a reference genome that allows us to guide the breeding programs to try and improve it and, and increase drought tolerance and disease tolerance. And so now that with this new resource, uh, we're able to guide the programs a lot faster and generate new varieties in a much quicker fashion. So what is the next step? Is it moving towards a breeding program? Yeah, so the next step would be to introduce the information into our breeding program so that we can better uh, characterise our varieties and produce better varieties for Australian farmers and farmers around the world. And then in what time period are we looking at that being accessible for farmers? Um, So right now it's in very early stages. Um, We're doing pre-breeding work to develop the technologies to be able to breed. So breeding programs do take a long time because they require a lot of seasons. So this is probably uh, five, ten years plus down the track. 
Because of the size of the gluten-free industry is expanding, was there more pressure to find a solution quicker? Yeah, definitely. So there was a really high uh, demand for these genomes because, as I said, the supply and demand is really high and being able to supply sufficient products um, is being a real challenge for the growers around the world. And so really the first port of call was to generate this genome to make everything else subsequent to this a lot faster um, and to get the varieties out there a lot quicker. Whereabouts is the majority of psyllium being supplied from at the moment? So the majority of psyllium currently is produced in uh, mostly in India and Pakistan, um, but we're exploring options uh, that are in Australia that we can uh, grow and uh, grow in a mechanised fashion that's a lot faster. And it's always been on our radar because the supply is critical and the supply that comes out of where it's currently grown fluctuates with, with uh, environmental conditions. And so the supply and demand is, is really, really high uh, from these uh, the companies that use psyllium husk. And so being able to generate this genome to try and stabilise those supply and demand problems makes it a much more productive environment to be growing and using these products. What are some examples that you are predicting we can see psyllium husks move into in, in terms of other gluten-free foods? Um, psyllium has a lot of uh, a really wide variety of uses that it could be used for. Uh, gluten-free breads are the main one, um, but we're looking into all sorts of avenues for delivering these fibres uh, into people's diets, uh, things like uh, fortifying soups and uh, adding extra dietary fibre into uh, other bakery products that uh, people might not necessarily get a lot of fibre from in their diet. James Cowley, researcher at the University of Adelaide, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris there. And uh, they certainly are becoming more and more popular gluten-free foods. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where this research into psyllium husks goes. We'll keep following that on the program. Now, one story that we have been following for a long time is the state of the wine industry. On Friday, I marked the start of the grape harvest in McLaren Vale with growers there getting together for a drink and a palmy and some moral support for what is expected to be a hard harvest. The Riverland harvest is also underway and again comes at a time of enormous turmoil with a lot of wine still in tanks, red wine grape prices in particular low and increased costs. And also on top of this, the flooding as well. Riverland Wine Executive Officer Lyndall Rowe can explain how the industry there is feeling ahead of harvest. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. The floodwaters have started to recede, but that is, it's still affecting grape growers in ways you might not expect. How is this flooding continuing to affect the, the Riverland grape growers? Um, the floods have indirectly impacted the wine tourism industry in the Riverland. Uh, approximately half of our members have small holdings and rely on off-farm income, and predominantly tourism, such as cellar doors, accommodation providers, is, are actually affected. So it, it, it's kind of been one crisis after another, um, starting with China tariffs, shipping problems, inflation, on costs, continuing to have a serious impact on the region, flooding, um, you know, is the next thing in terms of challenging, um, you know, issues in the wine industry. Is there any support coming from the government to support that tourism side of things that, as you've said, is so important to many growers in the Riverland? Yeah, we're working very closely with government, um, you know, for support for our grape growers and our winemakers. 
Uh, currently, we're working through details with the Department of Trade and Industry to rapidly develop markets that can absorb commercial volumes uh, of wine for all exporters. And we're looking particularly closely at the United States, but also we're interested in Europe. On the ground, as you've mentioned, the growers have had to adjust to this changing international environment where once China took a lot of the red wine, white wine is now perhaps more popular in many parts of the world. How easy is it for a region like the Riverland, which is very much built on a scale sort of uh, business model, to adjust to uh, quickly changing tastes? Yeah, I guess it it takes time and it's not easy. you know, they're, they're a stoic lot and they work really hard and, um, you know, this is their life, it's their existence, it's, you know, they're primary producers and they're such an important part of our economy. We, we recently did a survey which was very telling of our grape growers and significantly, a significant number of growers are actually looking to retire from the industry in the next three to five years. Um, and a significant number as well are looking to rest or rework red wine grapes or change to a different crop. So what, what they're saying to us is our growers is that they want us to provide them with great information so that they can make good business decisions. So it's, they've, they've come back with feedback, for example, how to exit the industry, financial assistance packages, you know, disease information, new varietal trends, um, accurate supply and demand detail, current sales for bulk wine, and I could just keep going on and on. So, you know, the way I see Riverland Wine positioning itself is that we're a great um, conduit between the growers and also government um, to work on packages um, and support where they really need it. Uh, I get one fantastic thing that's just happened recently is the government... Um, announcing support in terms of an industry blueprint. Um, So we're working really closely with PERSA and the government of South Australia and that's to develop a 10-year strategic blueprint which defines the path to recovery following unprecedented challenges over the last few years. So we know there's an oversupply of red wine grapes and that's particularly Shiraz and Cabernet. Um, Prices have fallen drastically, um, and, and this has been compounded by high input costs, extreme inflationary pressure on global shipping rates, and it's really uh, strained Australia's ability to be competitive on the global market. So Riverland grape growers have actually worn the brunt of this, and recent floods just have compounded it. So it's a $100,000 grant. Um, Riverland Wine will contribute a further $50,000 and the blueprint will identify strategic priorities that priorities for the entire region's wine industry to help it recover. So there'll be a steering committee, there'll be representation from across industry and government and what will be fantastic about it is, is that by the time we finish this blueprint, everyone will be on the same page and will have a path forward. Will the blueprint be enacted, though, in time for some of those growers who you were saying just before are looking at leaving the industry? Yeah, that, 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 is, that is a challenge. And, um, you know, that, that is going to take time. But we are working with government very closely to try and expedite this and get it done very quickly. 
because it, it needs to happen. And as I said, it, it's people's lives um, and their livelihoods that are at stake here. There is a lot of wine sitting in tanks that has been unable to be sold. How much of an effect is that going to have on this harvest and trying to, to move forward this year? It's significant because uh, market, you know, wants to buy and consume young wine. So there is definitely going to be um, wine that is unsellable. Um, we are actually working with government very closely to uh, look at a, a program that can um, um, sustainably and or sustainably remove the wine and um, basically dispose of it. Riverland Wine are really keen to partner with both the SOTC and Destination Riverland to improve visitor experience, generate pride for local products, put dollars in local product, uh, pockets. And it's really about building in-region sales of GI wine in local bars and restaurants. Um, you know, we, we need to build visitor numbers here again, but we really need to um, be selling a lot more um, Riverland, proudly Riverland wine on labelled bottles um, so that people are trying them and enjoying them and, you know, putting that money back into people's pockets. I do hope that this, this harvest goes smoothly, at least for the growers, even though the industry is still facing a, a wide range of uh, issues and barriers at the moment. So thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Linda Rowe, Executive Officer of Riverland Wine, speaking there. We'll stay with wine. We'll head to the other side of the state, though. And like many vineyards at the moment, Port Lincoln grape growers are also facing a later-than-usual vintage. For Liz Heidenreich, Chief Winemaker at Peter Tickle Wines, it's a matter of finding other jobs to do while she waits. She says it's going to be a late harvest due to unseasonal weather. Normally we're sort of around the sort of mid-February, I guess, but because of the really mild summer leading into sort of Christmas and New Year period and really mild January, we're finding that everything's uh, much later. So it's more like going to be a mid-March kind of start for us. Are you finding that around the, the rest of the state as well, that that's going to be an yeah, issue? Absolutely, yeah. No, in the, I've actually, I'm currently out in a vineyard doing some some slashing in, the, in Clare and everything's as green as green, so... Claire Barossa, the same, all, all much later than normal. What sort of impact does that have having to push vintage back, uh, you know, a few weeks? Oh, it doesn't really affect, I mean, it, you know, it, it, Mother Nature's in charge, so it'll be right when it's right. And I mean, we've got really nice weather. We've got nice, you know, sunshine sort of um, day. So, you know, great, great sort of cool, even ripening weather. Um, it helps retain freshness. We don't, you know, it's really, really sort of long heat waves you have in some summers can really sort of get the fruit a bit overripe. So it's nice to have, you know, a nice sort of mild, even ripening sort of period. Keeps the, the grapes fresh and and uh, retains natural acidity. How are the grapes looking in Port Lincoln? Yeah, good, good. No, all looking, um, yeah, all looking really good. We're just, um, yeah, just sort of waiting now. They're sort of um, as much as, you know, we've been able to do um, in the vineyard and, you know, setting up and getting ready is, sort of been done so um, it's just sort of waiting for waiting for the grapes to get ripe um, and yeah that'll that'll take a few more weeks but slowly things are happening but it's certainly um, yeah a bit later than normal but um, our yields um, we're sort of you know changing a bit of the way that it's been pruning and I've got um, a new vineyard manager Peter Lamb and 
so he sort of got in and you know doing doing sort of a few different things, trying to sort of get a get sort of good balance and yields out of vineyard. So, um, but but it's all looking you know really great. So just a waiting game now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, does that? There are plenty of other jobs to do, I imagine, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those um, uh, given me a chance. So um, we've had some wines bottled at the end of last year, so I'm going through all of those wines. We're getting ready to release those, so um, getting all the tasting notes and doing all the analysis. And because obviously the wines change once they're bottled, you know, they they go through a little bit of bottle shock, and so I sort of taste them, you know, kind of a month and then two months and three months after they're bottled and we, we make sure that they're ready ready to go before we sort of release them in cellar door. So I've been doing a fair bit of work on all of those plus um, plus cleaning the winery, getting the winery, all, all the um, equipment's been serviced and cleaned and it will just need another little um, you know final clean a couple of days before we actually get fruit in just to get rid of any sort of dust or whatever but it's all pretty much running and ready to go. Liz, at, uh, at Peter Tickle Wines, you, you've been uh, looking at releasing a, a couple of different wines that are new to the winery. Can you tell us a little bit about those and, and why you ventured into them? Um, sure. So this year we've, we've um, released a rosé. So that's our first uh, rosé that we've had. And that was actually, we've got some young a young planting of Shiraz, but the first fruit sort of came on vintage last year, 2022. And in young vines, often you get, sort of uneven ripening they're just sort of babies they take a few years really to to sort of um you know develop all their sort of tannin and um color structure and everything so it wasn't going to be um a shiraz that was strong enough sort of with tannins and everything else to actually be in our table red wine and i thought well you know we, we didn't have very much of it and i thought i'll i'll make a rosé i've made a fair bit of rosé um before i've made rosé in portugal where you know rosé is a huge part of you know the the wines over there so I've, I've had a fair bit of experience and i thought well you know this would be perfect these young young shiraz vines so so that's why there's like it's only very limited there's only a small amount but of course rosé is having a, a real resurgence you know a lot of people are enjoying it uh, it's a great sort of summer drink it's a great aperitif so um it'll i'm sure it'll be a, a wine that will continue to do is it something that you might look at doing in, in more um down the track yeah i think so i think so i think um you know i don't think i don't think our stocks won't last that long because we only there was it ended up being something like 700 liters it was such a small amount and rosé is quite a hard wine to make because you have to you have to get color and flavor out of the skins but you don't want too much color so it, you know, and you don't want too much tannin, so um, you, you end up with a product that's sort of um, you have a lot of, I guess, wastage because you have a lot of skins um, that you get rid of. You don't press it too hard, so your your yield is always quite low compared to some of the other wines that I make. But so there's not very much of it, and I don't think I think it, you know, probably will sell out sort of over the summer um, autumn period. But um, yeah, I'll certainly be making making more this year because I think it's a you know pretty popular drink at the moment. Chief winemaker with Peter Ticker Wines, Liz Heidenreich, speaking with Brooke Nindorf there. Sounds like uh, she's got quite a few plans for this vintage. Uh, tomorrow on the program, I'm going to be live at the Evoke Ag event that's on in Adelaide. It's one of the largest ag and food technology events in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's the first time it's in Adelaide. So we'll have lots of interesting topics there. So tune in tomorrow from 12 to 1. Right now, it's coming up to 1 o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. 
podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.